From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, once again, I have an extra, extra special guest. Uh, Jenny Johnson is CEO of investment giant Franklin Templeton. They run about a trillion and a half dollars. Uh, she's been CEO since February 2020. She's been with the firm uh, for decades. Just an incredible, insightful conversation about how to build a company, how to grow through acquisitions, how to make sure everybody on your team understands their role, is appreciated, and is acting and and performing at the highest levels. I, I found this conversation to be absolutely not only insightful and informative, but also delightful. And I think you will also, with no further ado, my conversation with Franklin Templeton CEO, Jenny Johnson. Jenny Johnson, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I've been back and forth for a while, and then we had the pandemic hit. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You joined Franklin Templeton in 1988. Family members helped found the farm, have run it for a long time. Uh, and back then, it was Frank. Was it Franklin Templeton? It was or not Franklin. And it, it was just we, Franklin. we acquired Templeton in 1992. Right. So I spent a year. My father said to me, "Look, if you're going to be in the financial services business, you should probably work in New York." And uh, so I spent a uh, year working for Drexel Burnham. And, that, and by the way, that's tough when you're a West Coast gal used to sunshine and nice exactly. weather, right? Although I was born in New Jersey. So, okay, you know, in Jersey. I, I was born in Montclair. Okay. So, uh, and I lived in New Jersey till I was about nine. So, uh-huh. so I came back and lived in Jersey City. And right. uh, said, and, now I remember why we moved to California. <laughs> right. Hey, there's some beautiful parts of Jersey. There are. It's the weather is really the big problem. Yes. You yeah, know? For, it's, for uh, sure. it's hard to beat that, you know, sunshine 300 days a year, to, <laughs> to say the least. So, so uh, since we're talking about weather, aside from the weather, what are the cultural differences like, especially in finance? Because California finance, very different than New York finance culturally. Sure. I mean, I think, so Franklin's headquartered in Silicon Valley. I actually think that what influences it more than anything now is the tech culture that's going mm-hmm. on on the West Coast. And, you know, it's kind of funny if you, and and now you see it in New York City, but, you know, if you showed up in a, a, in a meeting in a t- coat and tie you know, post the dot-com era and kind of, you know, coming into the more recent stuff, uh, you were viewed as sort of the old economy. Right. And, you know, now we see everybody, you walk around New York City, hardly anybody wears a tie. Uh, you know, the vest is the new uh, is I the think new the uniform. vest is already the... <laughs> they made me post. Right? Yeah. It's it's kind of moved to Lululemon <laughs> pants yeah, and, exactly. and yeah. you know, button-down shirts yeah. is, is about as dressed up. So as I don't think anybody yet. expected the, the West Coast to lead the East Coast on, uh, you know, culture and attire. But I think that's ha- happened a little bit um, on the tech. Otherwise... You know, it the, the West Coast. You know, if you were in the financial services business, it was rough life. You were mm-hmm. you were in the office by a lot of people. Get up at you know, nine a.m. lunch. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Right. I used to laugh, but yeah. the good news is, you finish at one, you could go out surfing. Yeah, there that, you that go. That was always a, a thing. So you're at Drexel for a year in New York. Mm-hmm. You come back to Franklin Templeton. What was your first role at FT? Oh. Gosh, or, no, or, or was it? It was still Franklin. Go ahead. It was. A, uh, I was an executive administrative coordinator. Right. <laughs> so I was working for the COO, kind of on special projects. Right. Uh, and then I moved into. Uh, we had a bank at the time, and I moved into uh, running part of the bank. And I got to tell you, I, we then spun out an auto financing business, 
And as a CEO today, I have to say that period of my career running the auto finance business was probably the most significant. I also ran our credit card business at the time. Both in, both difficult businesses. Well, so in, not in, easy. in learning how to do things as a CEO, one uh-huh. is uh, we were securitizing the assets in the auto loan and, and selling them off to other asset managers because we weren't able to buy them ourselves. And I remember being on the phone thinking, you know, as the as the PMs were asking questions about cash flows and things, I was thinking, you're asking all the wrong questions about whether this portfolio will perform because it's things like down payment. You know, there's, there's you know, the credit score, average credit score, right. all What's the things. What's the risk, not right. the... Exactly. And so it was really good to kind of learn that side of the business. And then, of course, as a CEO... It um, doesn't matter the size of the company. You're always talking about where to allocate capital. You know, should right. you add more to to marketing or in you know collections, right? And um, those are the same problems for big companies as little companies. And so I, I always felt like it was great learning experience. And then the biggest thing in the credit card business in the late '90s or early '90s, those who were great at data and data analytics uh-huh. dominated the industry and essentially put others out of it. And so I became a big fan uh, of data and how predictive it can be. But for all the obvious reasons, right? Mm-hmm. If you have an edge in data, you have an edge across the whole business line. For sure. So Franklin obviously divests out of the banking business, the credit card business, the auto financing business. What led to that decision? Did you guys just say, we really want to be pure investment management. Um, well, we we part part of it was I think regulatory. The requirements uh, for asset managers to have a bank were such that it was it would it would inhibit us a bit. Post SNL uh, crisis, it yes, became much exactly. tougher. Yeah, and and honestly, I think we divested. Uh, post-financial crisis. So once the rules oh, really? changed, yeah. So we kept it for a long time. Uh-huh. Um, but once the rules started changing, it became difficult around things like seeding new funds. You right. had to, within a year, you couldn't be more than 10% of the fund. Well, that's hard to do in our business because right. people look for a track record. So you sure. seed and get a track record. And we just looked at it and said, you know, it's not material enough to have it uh, cause the, 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 the complications that it causes it, on our asset management. Business. It sounds like it was an easy decision to cut it loose. Yeah, except that we, we do have a fiduciary trust, which is a high net worth business. Uh-huh. And it's always nice to have a, a lending arm when you have a high net worth business. All right. So so we're going to get into the acquisitions a little later. But from when you first started as an administrative organizational <laughs> assistant, whatever. Chief bottle washer. Right, right. <laughs> Fetch me some coffee, please. That sort of... Uh, and Although I, I would imagine that you still... You know, you you weren't the bottom bottom of the totem pole because people knew obviously knew who you were and knew who the family was. But from when you first started at was a let me get my feet wet sort of role, how has Franklin changed over the ensuing decades? Well, I have to say, um, when you say you, you you know you're you're right. You don't in a business where founders are still involved and you're a family right. member, you're going to be treated a little differently. But my father always was adamant. You have to work harder than everybody else because people would look at how hard you work right. and work just a little less. Like they won't feel like they have to do huh. uh, more. And I remember my first job was a summer job and I took over for my older sister who was 21 at the time. And I was, I don't know, 15 or 16. And, and he was paying her $5 an hour and he was paying me $2 and 50 cents an hour. And I said to him, look, I, I think I'm, I think I'm a harder worker and I think I should get $5 an hour. And he said, well, you can always get a job somewhere else. <laughs> so that's what I learned. Okay. There's certain Your standards. dad was no nonsense. No like, nonsense. He is serious. Yeah, 100%. You don't like it here? Hit the bricks. <laughs> exactly. Oh my, that's really interesting. But by the way, that's really astute observation People are going to look at how hard you're going to you're working, and they think, "All right, I could work a little less hard." Than yeah. Her. See, I would think they would want to work a little harder than you, just so no one accuses them of slacking. But maybe it's a generational thing. Who, yeah. Who, I who, who who knows? And we're not that far. I think we're about the same age. I was always taught, "Hey, find the hardest, fastest guy out there, and just do a little more than him." Yeah, for, so you don't want to be on the underside. You for want to sure. be be passing that. So, um, so, so were you in the early days, it was mutual funds, it was SMAs. What, what were you guys doing? It was really just mutual funds. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that was the, uh, that was the vehicle of choice and, you know, it evolved over time, uh, to things like SMAs and ETFs and collective Mm -hmm. investment trusts. Now, now you have to be able to provide all of those vehicles as outlets for your investment capabilities. Um, 
And I think a lot of that change happened. It was starting to happen, but accelerated after the global financial crisis where regulators pushed for more transparency Mm -hmm. in distribution fees. And so you saw this shift from kind of fees embedded in, say, the mutual fund vehicle to being external on the client statement. And so then advisors wanted things like ETFs and and SMAs and other things because the client was seeing that they were paying their advisor every month. And so that's changed. I think that's been a, a dramatic change in the industry on the type of vehicle we use. I always thought that the marketplace would fix that on its own. And and I've been wrong about this for decades. I always assumed people would see, oh, a five percent front load on a on a a C share or um, a two and a half percent annual. I assume people would see that and steer away, um, but it doesn't appear that that really happens until the financial crisis. Yeah. And that seems to be where indexing really took off and where people became a lot more price sensitive. Well, I think you were seeing a big shift to C shares where, you know, you had a bigger back end trail and a smaller upfront. Mm-hmm. So that was happening a bit. And, you know, look, I'm a big believer that, um, some of those type commission products are still important. We look in the UK where they have something called RDR. So they don't permit any kind of commission-based selling. And so it's all gone to fee-based and you have a huge percentage of population orphaned from advice Uh because essentially an advisor says, ah, that's too small of an account. It's not worth my time. Whereas if they got that upfront commission, they'd spend the time doing it. And the key is the difference for people investing early Mm -hmm. So if you invest for 10 years from age 25 to 35, say $5,000 a year, or you wait till 35 and invest for 30 years at $5,000 a year, you will have more money if you start for those investments over those 10 year period because of the compounding. Mm -hmm. And so getting people to invest early is really, really important. And you don't want to have mechanisms, regulatory environments that kind of prohibit them getting advice early. Huh. That that's interesting. Although, in today's digital world, as you guys know, there's so many ways to invest with no minimum uh, fees, and a lot of people, especially of the younger generation, are very comfortable as DIYers, not not do-it-yourselfers. Not that Robinhood is how they should be necessarily investing, but hey, it gets them interested in finance. It gets them thinking about money. That's not a terrible thing. No, it's not a terrible. It's, it's actually great. And especially because you can do some basic kind of asset allocation models. The robo-advisor can right. be terrific for somebody who doesn't have a complicated financial uh, situation. What you tend to see is as people uh, earn more and have more and more savings. Uh, somebody said to me anecdotally, if you have, you know, sort of three years worth of savings of your income, that's when you start to look for advice because you realize, you know what, this is more complicated. I, I'd rather have somebody who's full-time focused on this than me as a part-time person managing my money. I, I just have to share a funny story. We, we just got back from vacation, not like terribly long, but eight or nine days and you come back to all this mail and it's, oh, here's the IRS state, the pass-through. I got to forward that to the accountant. Oh, and here's a disclosure about this fund we have. And then here's the quarterly thing coming up. And all of a sudden, like in a rush, I figured out, oh, this is why people pay a fee for someone to give them advice. I don't want to deal with it. I'm right. like relaxed. I'm back from vacation. The last thing I want to do is start thinking it. about New York State PTET pass-through. Just, ugh. Take this off. What is it going to cost? Great. Get this off my plate. I don't want to deal with it. Well, and I think a lot of people, when like TurboTax came out, they said, oh, this is going to be the end of the CPA. Who are the number one users of TurboTax? It's CPAs, the CPAs. Yeah. Because in the end, people sit there and say, wait a second. Actually, the more money people have, the more they have options to do other things. And right. they think the opportunity cost of spending their time trying to manage those things is not worth it. It's the time. It's, it's time. the time is crucial. Plus, the rules change every year. Oh, Who wants to sure. have to stay current with that? Right. I find it's just like, you know what? And it's funny. This is like a later in life realization. When you're young and have all the time in the world and not a lot of money, I could figure this out. I yep. could do my own taxes. And then when you're older, it's like, oh, whatever it costs. Just, <laughs> just do it. Get this, <laughs> exactly. get this junk away from me. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? 
And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So, so let's talk a little bit about the history of acquisitions at Franklin Templeton. Um, just about 30 years ago, Franklin acquired Templeton, Galbraith, and Hansberger. Uh, that new name of the company became Franklin Templeton. So it was Franklin, along with mutual fund pioneer Sir John Templeton, you were kind of young in the firm in 92 when this took place. What do you recall from that fairly substantial, back then a billion-dollar acquisition was oh, not was, nothing? Yeah, no, it was huge. And uh, it was interesting because a lot of people, uh, we, we sort of came into that late uh, as far as one of the potential acquirers. So, you know, we basically viewed it as Franklin had was very strong in fixed income, domestic equity, and what Templeton did was open up this international investing, which was really pretty new right, for early. most assets. Yeah, they were they were you know you you they were pioneers in emerging markets and and uh, and really kind of global equity. And when we acquired it, a lot of people were skeptical because asset management acquisitions don't always work. Right, uh, and big it seemed expensive. Big cultural difference, and right. it, and it was expensive. And I have to say that my dad understood, and we it's been our philosophy you know throughout all our acquisitions. In the asset management business, what are you buying? You're buying people, their investment capability, and their investment process. So don't destroy value by going in and messing with it. Mm-hmm. So we really left it standalone uh, on the investment side and then integrated the rest of the firm. Uh, and that worked out really well. That's so different of an approach than we typically hear, which is we want to buy a company for the assets, the revenue stream, maybe some technology or intellectual property, and we're going to just mash you into our culture whether you like it or not. That that seems like a little more nuanced approach that your your dad took. I don't see a lot of other mergers in the finance space that are that hands-off. Maybe uh, the, the big acquisition of PIMCO 20 years ago um, was maybe a little too much hands-off, but for the most part, it seems like everybody just mashes everybody together. Yeah, I mean, I you know, in our case, I wouldn't say it's totally hands off. It's hands off on the investment process, uh-huh. right? And and really um, trying to integrate integrate the rest of it, and then trying to figure out ways that you can add value because you have scale, so that these firms you know don't have that was less of an issue in the Templeton deal, but with our more recent acquisitions, that's been really important. What can we do? because we're bigger that can enhance the various investment teams. So so let's talk about some of those more recent acquisitions. 2020, you buy Leg Mason. Um, I think it was an all cash deal, four and a half billion dollars. Is that about right? Yeah, and then we the, took on some debt. Yep. yep. Um, what was the thinking that, what did Leg Mason bring that you guys needed or didn't have? Yeah, so uh, in the case of Leg, they had Western Asset Management, which is mm-hmm. uh, you know core core plus fixed income, which is the largest category, and we just didn't have scale there. And you have to have scale to be in the institutional space. Uh, and the other big one that was exciting for us was Clarion Partners, which now is an eighty-two billion dollar. I think they were probably forty-five at the time, forty-five billion uh, real estate manager. Mm-hmm. And we knew that we wanted to get into alternative space. And so getting that as part of the leg deal um, was really exciting. And then, you know, unbelievable managers in Clearbridge and Martin Curry and Brandywine. And so uh, we just got great expertise there. They were 75% institutional. We were 75% retail. So bringing the two firms together, you really made us 50-50 retail and institutional. And huh. that's been very important. Huh. And then um, this year you acquire... Putnam for almost a billion dollars. Putnam, almost the purchaser of uh, Templeton, which is kind of uh, kind of amusing that everybody yeah. ended up in the same place. Uh, that seems to be a very strategic pur- purchase. Tell us the thinking behind acquiring Putnam. So let me step back and just say you know, sort of what our strategy is in acquisition. Mm-hmm. So we've done, I think, 10 in the last, Putnam will be our 10th in the last um, three years. And they've all been focused on, if you think about the big macro trends going on in the industry, mm-hmm. One is 
private markets are here to stay. And they're here to stay, uh, one, take private credit, right? The, the banking crisis of the global financial crisis had regulators change the capital requirements for banks. Banks preserve their capital for their best clients. And right. it created this opportunity for, you know, basically private credit outside the banking system. And honestly, with the with the discussion around, which I have strong opinions on, discussion around um, more capital requirements post the regional banking crisis, uh-huh. uh, I think that's only going to get worse. And then you and look that's at- going to create opportunities for firms that are filling that void. Exactly. I, and by the way, this really began in the late '90s, early 2000s, as the big banks moved upscale. They left a void underneath, and, and exactly. private markets stepped right in. That's exactly right. And then the other piece of that, and you know, this was definitely fueled by low interest rates, but private equity. The fact is, companies can stay private longer, and mm-hmm. you see that in the numbers. Right, two thousand average company went public after three years. That was probably an anomaly in the dot com. Right. By two thousand nineteen, it was uh, I think nine to ten years, and by two thousand twenty two, it was fourteen to fifteen years before wow. they were going public. Right. You have half the number of public companies that you had in 2000. And so you you look at it. Well, why go public? Right. A public company has quarterly earnings pressure. Um, You know, there's a lot of uh, scrutiny uh, around compensation of the staff. There's a lot of uh, there's an expectation on political. You know, you're going to opine on certain political issues. If you're a private company, you don't have any of those pressures. right? Right. And in a time of great technological advances, you need to invest for things. I mean, some of the stuff we're doing in the blockchain space won't be material to the firm for seven to 10 years, but we think it's really important that we're doing it now. But if you're a private company, if you're a public company, shareholders are going to give you grief about that sort of R&D. If it's impacting your your you know quarterly uh-huh. earnings, sure. we're fortunate in that we still have founders and, and employees and management that have a, a significant amount of the stock. So we can sort of withstand some of that pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if your stock's underperforming, you can always get an activist in who's looking short short term to capture the benefit and say, we're, we'll be worth more if we break all this up. That doesn't build a long-term sustainable company, but that's the type of pressure that public companies have. And so we we believe that trend is here to stay. And we knew that we needed to add those capabilities. So our one, I, I say there's three areas that we look for in acquisition. So one is filling product gaps, particularly in the case of private markets. Mm -hmm. The second is, the second big trend was when the financial crisis happened and you had, we mentioned, you know, the the regulators made, uh, put put pressure on to have transparency around distribution fees and advisors became fee-based. That honestly pushed much of the power to the distributor. Mm -hmm. And honestly, actually to the person who deals directly with the client, to the financial advisor themselves. And so, uh, and and the manufacturer had less power. And so we look for ways that we can build greater strength in distribution as being a better strategic partner. Some of that's fintech. Uh, In the case of the Putnam, it's building a a, a closer relationship with PowerCorp, who has, uh, you know, who owns uh, both Great West Life Insurance or significant uh, control of it, as well as Empower the second fast the second largest retirement platform fastest growing one and that's really important because the retirement channel is where mutual funds still have growth right because there's no reason to put an ETF there the, exactly, the, the negative tax. on a mutual fund is phantom taxes hey if it's a qualified account it doesn't matter it's, exactly. a, it's irrelevant exactly and there are advantages to mutual funds For in sure. terms of of trading and and management that Give it a leg up over over ETFs, especially in that sort of environment. Absolutely. So, so I want to talk about the forty percent and a little bit of insulation from public markets, but I'm going to circle back to that. I, I got to ask you about one last acquisition. Last year, you purchased O'Shaughnessy Investments, uh, including their direct indexing uh, product called Canvas. Full disclosure: we're one of the early users of Canvas. I think my firm. Ritholtz Wealth Management is the largest, or at least was when you acquired it, the largest um, client of Canvas. We love the product and our clients have found it to be tremendously useful in terms of managing and offsetting capital gain taxes. What was the thinking behind the O'Shaughnessy acquisition and what are the plans for Canvas? Oh, fantastic. I mean, you probably could, having a, being a user of it, you probably could even speak to this more than I can. But I can tell you, we think, again, a big trend is this direct indexing. But the reason we love Canvas, and I know you know this, is Canvas grew out of a quant shop mm-hmm. that built 
the technology to manage their quant portfolio. And so when initially you just have direct indexing with tax optimization, but we look at it as a tool where we think you can take just like the trend towards SMA, separately managed accounts, you can use the technology of Canvas, express our active management strategies in there. So take a mutual fund strategy, deliver it through the Canvas platform, uh, overlay with tax optimization, and even include some ESG overlay. So if you have a right. client who says, you know, I, I really want to, uh, you know, my daughter will say, I really want things that are pushing towards uh, net neutral on uh, net zero on carbon. So she wants her portfolio managed that way. You can put those tags in there, but still take a professionally managed strategy right. and, and express it through that technology. So we looked at that and said, this is going to be really significant in the future. Um, we have to be in the direct index space, but more importantly, we have to have great technology because we think this is just the beginning of a trend. Right. Not, not only is the software really good, but the O'Shaughnessy database it's that amazing. they've been polishing up for decades, uh, very few things. I mean, CRISPR is probably the only other one that is that focused, that dedicated, that clean. Most databases are just problematic to do this sort of work. And uh, Jim is now retired, but uh, and his son Patrick took over. Yep. Um, but it's a great product. They're a great team. I, I'm, I'm sure you guys are going to have a lot of success with them. Um, let me go over a couple of more uh, acquisitions that really kind of surprised me. Managed options capabilities. Tell us, tell us about that. Well, we think that's going to be important to to add to the uh, Canvas platform. Oh, really? Right? So, yeah. So, um, managed options are important as part of the uh, tax optimization strategy, uh, and so the the feeling is, is that you needed that to be included to where this where the technology will ultimately go for this where, where the uh um, the strategies will ultimately so go. when i hear managed options and uh capital gains i think zero cost collars and things like that is is that what's along the lines here yeah so they can include that in, now in in like a separately managed account oh that's really really interesting and then um alcentra you acquired from bny mellon um lexington partners who's another private equity and secondary entity. And then I didn't realize you guys bought Advisor Engine. Yeah. That was like a big um, sort of semi-robo-advisor uh, yeah. for, for advisors. I mean, this is a long line. And then Alternative Credit Manager, Benefit Street Partners, and then Athena Capital. I mean, you guys have been on a tear. <laughs> All of these things are different products, filling in holes, different services. And you want to be able to offer a full rounded set of products to institutional and retail clients. Yeah, we want to be the first phone call. We want to be the strategic partner where, you know, somebody's thinking, I've got this problem. Let me think about how to solve it. I want to talk to Franklin Templeton and and talk to them about how to approach it. And so you, know, you take Advisor Engine. It has a, a CRM system mm -hmm. that was built by a financial advisor. So, you know, a lot of... Um, you know, a lot of smaller RIAs don't have a tech team to sit there and say, how do I use Salesforce? How do I use uh, Microsoft Dynamic? And so they want something simple. So this is a simple CRM system that's just for the business of being a financial advisor. And if we can build that relationship with that advisor, uh, then we, we feel like we can be a stickier partner. How important is the registered investment advisor, the RIA space, to Franklin Templeton. I always thought of you guys back in the day as mutual fund managers, perhaps selling into that um, vertical. I sound like a marketing guy, but how important is the RIA space to Franklin Templeton today? Well, the RIAs have been growing, uh, again, as the fee-based environment and the fact that people honestly could take their book and, and walk in and, and set up their own shingle and, and be on a platform provider. And so it's a really important channel for us. It's it's a we are much bigger uh, in the wirehouse and the uh, in the independent channels because that's kind of been our DNA historically. Mm -hmm. uh, and and those who came, who were big in the ETF tended RAs have tended to lean more towards ETFs, although that's a a little bit of a stereotype. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's been an important area of focus for us to to grow that channel. And, and to be fair the wirehouses have kind of been slowly morphing into advisors. They're all hybrids these days. It's exactly less transactional, right. more fee-based to the benefit of the clients. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Huh. Really, really quite fascinating. 
Let's talk a little bit about your experience as a woman running a corporation. Uh, you've held leadership roles across just about every line of business in the company. What was that experience like? What did you learn from running things as diverse as investment management and technology? It seems like totally opposite uh, business. It's funny. So, uh, you know, on the first question, people ask me, what's it like to be a woman in finance? Well, the problem is I don't know what it's like not to be one. So I don't know that I <laughs> right. have a, a, a good answer to that. But I can say I am so thankful today as a CEO to have having run technology uh, because so much, I think, of decisions that we have to make and innovation that's happening mm -hmm. requires a basic understanding of technology. Uh, and so I, I look at, you know, parts of your career, you, you, you've sort of move your way around and you wonder whether it's going to be relevant at some point or not. Uh, and some of the things that I think were, would naturally people think wouldn't be relevant to being CEO have been uh -huh. the most relevant. I mentioned running the auto finance business right. and honestly running the technology department. You don't have a background in tech. How hard was it to ramp up uh, running a tech division when you're not a natural geek? And it's almost a different language sometimes. So it's funny. I, um, although I'm divorced now, but I was married to a a, a guy who who was a tech person, uh -huh. and I'd always ask him all these questions. I was really curious around it, and so um, I, I always felt like he gave me a really good background on understanding technology. And then I learned to be fearless in asking the question, right? Tech people are used to everybody's being so afraid of tech that they give you, they can sometimes give you a little bit of a blurred answer. They can steamroll you yeah, a little and, bit. Yeah, and you're afraid to look stupid so you don't ask. Well, I learned, you know what? If you think about what technology is, it's moving this piece of data from here to here and maybe adding some new data. Uh-huh dumb down what you're talking about and let me just try to understand it, right? And and things like cloud servicing, right? These are concepts that have existed in tech for a long time. The technology gets better and we usually change the name about every decade. Right. But once you understand what it's trying to achieve, you don't have to be a programmer. You just, you know, and I honestly, I think one of the biggest things that people don't appreciate is the quality of data. Mm -hmm. truly garbage in, garbage out. And so having discipline around your data management is really, really important in a tech department. It's really hard also. We it's were talking hard. earlier yeah. about the O'Shaughnessy database. Yeah. I know that they painstakingly triple check and quadruple check stuff because you don't want an errant thing in there that will change the outcome of, of a backtest or a model. For sure. And I think actually uh, we all talk about AI and AI understanding and the models that you use and the combination of models can be really important. But honestly, I think the real competitive advantage is going to be, and this is why I think scale in asset management is so important, is the breadth and depth of the database. So mm -hmm. we have an investment data lake that is shared by our 18 individual investment teams. Uh, and so, you know, as they contribute, so maybe a team like our global macro team has 14 different feeds for its ESG framework. Mm -hmm. They come in, it's scrubbed centrally. Now that data is available to, to the other teams, yeah. right? And we think over time, it's going to be more about what unique data do you have that you can apply your models. It's going to be more and more important. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So, so let's talk a little bit about your leadership experience. Your timing was impeccable. You step into the CEO role February 2020. Thank goodness nothing was about to happen over the next three years. What was it like? a month into the new gig and suddenly the world shuts down. Yeah. Well, so I, I uh, stepped in, uh, I think February 11th, I think February 20th, we announced the acquisition of Leg Mason, which of course had been in the works right. for quite a while. So we had good plans in place. And then about three weeks later, remember we were going to flatten the curve with two weeks off. Yeah, that's right. right. That turned into two years. It's, it's just going to be 10. <laughs> yeah. That was transitory. Right? Yeah, that was transitory. Um, 
you know, you just deal with the cards that are in front of you. Mm -hmm. And uh, the good news was when I was running technology, I became very passionate because we had, you know, developers in India uh, and kind of around the world, Poland and various places. And I felt like it was really important that you could see people when English was a second language. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we push, I pushed the tech team to get a desktop video. And so we had these devices, they were called a Tanberg device, and it sat separately on your desktop uh, and we would do video calls. Mm -hmm. And so the company had, you know, been doing this for 20 years. Zoom before Zoom. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so we were comfortable. It was already part of our DNA to have meetings where inevitably somebody was on video. So it was already kind of how we operated. Now you had everybody on video. Right. Uh, and I think the, the thing that I appreciated was actually people finally believed you can run businesses that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, in many ways, we closed the Leg Mason deal two months ago two months early. Uh, and I think it was because we were in some ways more efficient by doing mm. it um, via video, not everybody getting on an airplane and going and trying to work your calendars to go meet. You know, the the crazy unexpected benefit of the new post 9-11 rules was that everybody had to have backup systems. You couldn't just have everything in one location. Uh, I think the SEC promulgated those. And when people were suddenly forced to work from home, it was very easy to get, or relatively easy to get up and running, just an unexpected side effect of the new regulations that came in after we, you know, we lost the Twin Towers. It's who who knew that the SEC can actually be so um, forward looking and hey, you know, it it all worked out. We were all able to to get up and running. Um, So- were there any complications from all this remote work in your CEO transition or you were in place when everything hit the fan and, you know, it was just a matter of, of tacking into the wind when when yeah, the I world changed? I mean, I wouldn't attribute anything in particular to to that. I mean, you're you know, when you do an acquisition, one of the most important things you do is assess talent and there's a bias towards your own talent. Uh, and it's a missed opportunity if you don't infuse your organization with talent from the company you acquired. And so we were very focused on that. And sure, you'd love to meet people in person versus doing Zoom interviews. Right. But, um, you know, we had to do it that way. And we ended up with, I think, two thirds of, of uh, Leg Mason's kind of corporate services groups came into Franklin Templeton. And a big part of the distribution team became part of Franklin Templeton. Uh, so, you're, you know, you're trying to kind of build a best athlete and it's not just the best athlete, it's the best team. So sometimes uh, you're just trying to make sure the team will, you know, coalesce. And uh, and I think we did a pretty good job of that. Hmm. Re- really interesting. You, you mentioned your dad. Let, let's talk about some leadership lessons. What did your father teach you about managing people, running a company, and getting all of the horses pulling the, the cart in the same direction? I mean, one of the things my father has always said, take care of the client and the business takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. And so anytime uh, there'd be, and I still talk to him about things, uh, you know. Your dad on. is how old now? He just turned 90 in January. And, and sharp as a tack, right? Absolutely. That, Absolutely. That's really, you got some yeah. good genes here yeah, uh, no, you're dealing amazing. with. Uh, and so, you know, if, if you think about that and you overlay that in any decision, is this good for the client? Um, then I think that gives you a lot of clarity. It's kind of a North Star there. And then I'd say my dad is, you know, he was always incredibly fair to people. And he recognized that every person contributes to who we are as a company. Mm-hmm. When your call center employee picks up the phone and is talking to a client, they're shouldering the entire reputation of the firm on them with that client. And my dad always understood that. And so there's just a genuine respect for everybody's contribution to the company. Hmm. Uh, and I think that's part of our culture. That, that's really interesting. You mentioned um, you, you took a, a sp- slot from your sister when you first started at an entry level. I know one of your brothers was very involved with, with the firm. Um, what's it like dealing with people that you have this familial personal relationship how do you manage around that? I would think that's, I'm just thinking about my own siblings <laughs> and we would have killed each other and gone bankrupt long ago. If we had Everybody asked me, is this succession? No, right. not in our family. I no. wasn't even thinking about that. I'm just thinking about my own family and I know there would have been bloodshed, but 
How do you navigate that? It yeah, sounds no. challenging. Uh, there were definitely times where I'd say to my brother, listen, stop. You can't treat me like my your little sister in a meeting. Right. Um, but no, in front of other people. In front of other people, right. right. Um, but you know what? Uh, as a family, we get along great. And yeah. my brother and I get along great. And you know, he's still executive chairman today. And you know, we talk about parts of the business, things that I'm struggling with. I'll talk to him. I'll talk to my dad. Uh, and I got to tell you, what a great... Um, privilege it is to be a CEO and have people who ha- care so much like you do to be able to talk to about about things that you're thinking about. You go to them for advice all the time? We'll talk about, you know, before any acquisition is done, that's mm-hmm. clearly, uh, you know, part of the conversation, uh, as well as my uncle. Uh, my uncle's still active in the firm. And so, you know, we'll have conversations about what, what we think. Does it make sense? And, uh, you know, it, it's just my father, my uncle, my brother will never say you have to do this. They'll say, "Here are the thinking on it." And my huh. brother would say the same thing when he was CEO for 15 years. My father was a great resource, but never would tell you what to do. Huh. Um, really and so it's nice to have those voices in the room. But in the end, the decision's mine as a CEO with my board and my management team, uh, and and they're just great advisors. That, that's great. I, I love the stock symbol. Ben, yeah, right? Too. I mean, so so great. Um, you talked earlier about uh, long termism versus short termism. The family still owns uh, like forty percent of the outstanding yeah. shares. Yes. Does that insulate you from the sort of short term activist? What about this quarter's returns when you're making those? long-term investments in technology how, how does that affect how you navigate yeah no i mean for sure you you the risk in asset management is that an activist comes in and says you know what why don't we spin off all these groups because right. we can get a bigger multiple for the alts business and you know various things and and that that is a short-term gain right and doesn't build a long sustainable business so it's better to have that you know for and i genuinely believe scale is going to be more and more important, as I mentioned, for things like mm-hmm. data for asset managers. And so building a long-term business is really important. An activist doesn't take on a company that's got a 40% you know, control because you can't get enough stock right. to be able to ultimately, uh, you know. Right. They have to get 90% of the remaining yeah. 60. It's a, yeah. it's, so that does create a little bit of a buffer. So you guys can think very long term, make acquisitions and make investments, right. which other publicly traded companies might not have that luxury. Right. And we are totally aligned with the shareholders because we're looking for the best outcome for the the stock. And uh, again, sometimes that's making some investments today that, you know, will pay off in a few years. So this is a, a ridiculous question, but Tell us about your next acquisition, <laughs> meaning I don't expect you to say we're going to pay X for this. Like what areas do you think are interesting? Where are you looking yeah. to say, hey, we can acquire some talent and some technology in this space? So uh, the, with respect to kind of product gaps, the only one that we really feel is out there as a gap is infrastructure. So really? if uh, interesting, because we think there's going to be a lot of growth. On in the, the bond side or on the equity side? Um, probably equity, but but uh, because we can do the uh, on the private credit teams, they mm-hmm. can do it on the, on the bond side. Um, but it would be, that would be an area that would be interesting to us. Uh, we like local asset management. So, you know, we, we have clients in 155 countries. Uh, people tend to like home, they have a home country bias. Uh, so, you know, 80% flows in India tend to go to domestic products. We, we were the first foreign manager in India. Uh, and so we have local equity, local fixed income, but we look for markets that made sense to us. Uh, we'd be a buyer of a a local asset management. Um, we have them spattered throughout the, the world. Uh, and then, as I mentioned on the distribution side, anything that builds that deeper relationship that can help us with distribution. So I don't want to talk about politics. I want to talk about culture and environment. We're recording this. We have President Modi here in the U.S. India seems to be like a perennial next economic powerhouse after China, and it just always seems to be not catching that next bid. When you look at a region like that, and I don't want to just talk about India, but if you're looking at India or you're looking at China or you're looking at um, Taiwan or Singapore or Korea or Vietnam, how, how do you think about building a presence in a place like that and developing a relationship either 
building or acquiring a, a local entity? Because uh, and how do you pick? Let's focus on this region over that region. It seems like it changes from week to week, month to month. It's it's going to matter um, the demographics of a, a country, uh, the the growth, the the policies, the regulation. All those that go into factors. I mean, we we uh, were in India. In 1995, we were in Taiwan in 1985. Wow. Uh, China first investments in 1988. Uh, so, you know, we look at those. Uh, Asia is going to be, they say there's going to be a billion people who enter the mi- middle class in the next decade, and 87% of them are going to be in Asia. Um, I'm, I lived in India for a little while when I was running the technology and the operations group. Uh, and I can tell you 56% of the population is under the age of 25. Wow. It's got a British legal system, a British education system. Um, you know, while there's 23 different languages that are spoken and more dialects, Everybody English, speaks English yeah. you know, the, the, certainly you aspire to speak English. And so the people that you hire from colleges are all English speaking. So that's those are all great tailwinds for the economy. Many people say, you know, India grows at night when the government sleeps. I think Modi's <laughs> been doing a really terrific job at, uh, you know, trying to to, you know, reduce the amount of kind of bureaucracy that's there. I have to say that. My observation when I would be excited by all those statistics was Indians were the most skeptical about India. On my last trip, it was a clear difference in view that that in India, Indians and Indian Americans are really excited about what's going on. And for the first time, I found an optimism there that I hadn't really sensed uh, before. That's so interesting because that's what I meant by they're perennially about to happen like they can very easily be uh, on par with China in terms of their economic prowess, more along the lines on technology and software and other areas where clearly there's a huge, huge infrastructure there. And it just seems to like always be about to happen and never happens. Well, you know, they say there's six times the number of engineers that graduate in India every year than the U.S. Uh, And I can tell you, you know, an Indian would prefer to go to an IIT than Harvard. They look at Harvard as a safety school. I mean, (laughs) really. And and so MIT, though, is really still very difficult. (laughs) Right. Um, But the IITs are pretty phenomenal. right? And, And and we end up. You know, importing a decent number of engineers from the best Indian schools, is that still going on the way it used to? Well, I think a lot of them are deciding that there's more opportunity even at home. It Mm -hmm. used to be they had to come to the U.S. or Europe because that was going to be where the opportunity is. But now the domestic economy is is growing so well that there's a lot of excitement. So there's uh, less that are choosing to leave. Uh, And then I think, you know, China, a lot of of discussion around China, you know, China's what's the U.S., 23% of world's GDP mm-hmm. and China's 18%. The next, the third is like Japan at 4.9. Right. I mean, it's a big, big market and um, it's going to be important. Uh, and so, you know, we have a, a, a joint venture there uh, and we continue to, uh, you know, invest in, in China. Uh, but then there's other markets, you know, that you you look at, there are 300 million people in in Indonesia, if they right. get their policies right, it's going to be amazing growth. Uh, Vietnam, you know, another one. Capital markets are really tough there, but, you know, it should be a great opportunity and growth. And you see some of the supply chains. People are diversifying. India is one of the beneficiaries of that. Uh, Vietnam's another beneficiary mm-hmm. of that. Uh, Japan, even in the case of semiconductors. So I think there's just a lot going on there uh, that is pretty interesting. And then the Middle East is another uh, amazing Yeah, area. they seem to be purposefully trying to morph their reliance away from crude oil and energy towards more modern technologies. How, how can you even think about making an investment in the Middle East on anything other than oil? That's no longer the case. Right. right. I mean, I think what's interesting is they think like a generational family thinks. Right. right? And so in their mind, oil runs out, I don't know, three generations, for whatever it is, they want to reinvest in their economies to diversify it, to ensure that they're not out of money when that happens, right? And I actually genuinely believe some of the greatest innovation on renewable energy is going to come out of places like Abu Dhabi and and huh. uh, Saudi Arabia because they are investing in it uh, and they have the balance sheet to be able to make those investments. And, and, and keep in mind, oil isn't going to go away. It's just going to no. go away as an energy source, as a material science source, 
it's enormous. The old joke used to be uh, the Arab Sheik says to the American businessmen, we're selling you all this oil. We can't believe you guys burn this. You know what it's really good for. You can make it into a million different things. And and that's the future of oil, not not energy, but materials. Um, so you have you have confidence in in what's going to take place in the Middle East. How does one invest into that region? If if you're a retail investor, hey, I like the idea of India, I could go buy an ETF. I like the idea of Middle East. How do I invest in that? Well, I, I think um, you got to spend a little time there and go see because I took my executive committee to the Middle East. Um, uh, we visited uh, several countries there. And honestly, I think that many of them felt that we were going there uh, to you know, think about raising money from that region and came away thinking there are going to be investment opportunities there. Huh. We actually acquired in 2007 a local asset management. I mentioned local asset management being important. Um, so a local asset management team uh, that's based, we've been in Dubai f- about 20 years, uh, and we're the largest, I think, you know, uh, multinational Sharia manager for Islamic finance huh. that came out of that local team. Uh, and so oh, they do local GCC bonds and equity investments. Uh, so there's there's a lot of opportunity, I think, to invest there. Huh, really quite fascinating. So so let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the world today. Uh, we've seen this massive change in rate regimes. How does that affect your ability to run the firm? And how does it affect fund managers dealing with this sudden 500 basis point increase in rates? Well, I think the good news is that uh, fixed income is now uh, actually an asset class you want to be in. And you hey, look, returns. we get yield. Exciting, we right. get yield exactly. Um, and so, you know, I think that's that's terrific, right? And then, you know, the other thing is volatility is good for active managers, right? Mm-hmm. It, it shows whether you have skill. And uh, we've we've come off a decade where basically government's been pumping money into the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you didn't have access to private markets, you couldn't make any money in fixed income. So where'd you go? You went into equities. It just exploded equities uh, up. And uh, what was that? 2010 to 2020, 14, yes. 15% a year? Exactly. That's, that's double normal. But it was hard. If you're if you are an active manager, your job is to have a diversified portfolio and think about risk adjusted returns. Right. And when you have a momentum market like that and you have five companies that take, you know, 25% of the index or whatever it ended up right. being, a, a, a professional manager gets nervous by that type of concentration in say the S&P 500. And there's not enough discussion about how the indexes the 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 market risk of the index changes depending on one, you know, the day Tesla was added to the S&P 500, it became a much riskier investment by investing in the S&P 500 based on volatility and concentration. And so in those types of market, it's hard for an active manager to actually beat that. But when you have volatility, that's when you start to see uh, outperformance. Huh. Um, So let's talk about money market funds. Not only are you seeing some yield on on, uh, fixed income products, Money market funds used to yield nothing. Now you're actually seeing some returns, um, even though there's been some concerns about uh, some of the regulation around money market funds and the problem we had in the financial crisis. What what is Franklin Templeton doing in this space? Well, first of all, I don't think money market funds look anything like they did when you had problems. And Uh, you just had a couple of huge huge difference. And so, um, you know, there's if you have a certain amount of risk in it, you're a prime floating fund. Otherwise, you're you're, you know, tied to the dollar and it's it's short duration. And, um, uh, you know, I think very secure and. You know, today you can get five and a half percent in a money market fund. I mean, that's pretty Real money, impressive, right? Real money. Uh, and I think that we've seen a lot of of uh, money flow into money market funds because people saw that they could get that, and they weren't ready to get back into the market. Now, having said that, we're close to the end of the cycle. Uh, you know, end the of the rate hike, the rate cycle? hike cycle, right? Okay. Um, you know, I think the Fed is is saying they're going to still raise more, and I think you could see one to two more times that they raise right. this year. I think I think people are finally over the they're going to cut this year. I, I definitely don't think they're going to cut this year. Um, Those but, were the same people, by the way, who have been forecasting a recession for the past <laughs> eighteen months. Yes. So of course they think the Fed's going to cut. <laughs> um, what I find fascinating about the whole. Fed investor community thing is that um, Jay Powell keeps saying, this is what I'm going to do. And nobody ignores him. him, Right. I mean, go back 20 years. You had no idea what the Fed was doing. He's telling you 
Nobody wants to believe it. But them. you know why? A huge percentage of fixed income managers have only lived through the time that the Fed bailed us out every time. Right. Right. And so they've been in that. And so they believe that that's going to be the response. Whereas people that have a little more experience, like me, you, right. we, we know that you can't always, you know, count on the Fed to, to bail you out. And as a matter of fact, Jay Powell's trying to be very clear with it. And the market keeps fighting the Fed and, and thinking, you know, they're going to call us bluff or something. I think <laughs> that the Fed is being very data driven at this point. And uh, and he's trying to make it clear that if if there it, the, the economy still remains pretty hot, he's going to raise rates further. Here's a crazy stat that someone shared with me: If you were born after 1980 and you work in finance, you don't know what it was like when we had no idea what the Fed. I remember we used to look at the the flow of funds report to try and tease out what might happen. Now the Fed says, we're going to do this, and then they go out and do it. I'm born before 1980, <laughs> so this is all new to me. But imagine spending your whole career where, uh, of course, uh, we're going to get bailed out by the Fed if that happens. How do you recover from that as a professional if you've never experienced wild market? I, I guess that isn't true because you have experienced wild market volatility, just the cavalry has always come to the rescue. That's right. I think that's right. And I don't think that, you know, I I, I don't think that the, the Fed is going to, oh, I, as I said, I think the Fed is going to be very data driven. And right now, you know, unemployment is still, what is it, 3.7? Very still low, right? Historically low, yeah. low levels. You're starting to see some labor participation coming back in a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I look at a lot of people say, is there going to be a recession or not? There probably is. I mean, Eventually. They, 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 they have to, right? I right. mean, that, they have to cool it down. The question is, is it a deep recession that causes right. a lot of, we don't think, or at least I don't think, and by the way, we have five different fixed income teams at Franklin Templeton, uh -huh. so there are some different views on this, but that we'll have a deep recession. Uh, and, uh, you know, but the, the Fed has definitely jammed on the brakes mm -hmm. and it's still been hard. You know, the easy part was getting inflation from nine to five, right. four and a half. Now's the real challenge. So last PPI that came out had a three handle on it. CPI usually follows PPI. Uh, Jay Powell can put a flag in the ground, declare victory, take a long vacation. He's already won, right? <laughs> is is am I oversimplifying that too much, or can can he just say, "All right, I'm I'm taking the summer off"? Well, I think the challenge for him is that they've been very vocal about the two percent target. And, and Which so, is a little weird because 2% target was post 9-11, post financial crisis, post pandemic, where rates were at zero and 2% was the upside target. Maybe that target should be rethought. Maybe 3% makes uh, sense. Yeah. So until we start to hear the Fed start talking about maybe they're going to change that target or l lighten up on that target, I think uh, it's tough for him to just take too long of a break. Sure, he can take the break through the summer. Yeah, right, take the summer absolutely. off. You could absolutely go do that. fishing. They, they go to Jackson Hole. There's great fly fishing up <laughs> there. There you go. Right? I mean, he could just chill out for a while. All right, so I want to throw one curveball at you. All right. Um, and as a West Coast girl, I got to ask you, you're on the board for the San Francisco Giants. What was that experience like? <laughs> So I, I was. Now my brother Greg uh, is uh, is the control person at the Giants. Look, at it, it was a blast, I have to say. Uh, the, the thing that I learned, I think I know a little bit about baseball. I don't know mm -hmm. anything about baseball. Baseball people talk about statisticians. They know every They're little. Quants. This They're guy's, all quants. Yeah, this right. guy's going to move three feet with this pitcher who goes up. And so pretty quickly I realized I don't actually know that much about baseball. <laughs> but I loved it. It was it was a lot of fun. And, of course, I was there as I, I teased my brother uh, about, you know, when I was on the board, we won three World Series. Uh, right. What have you done? What have you done, <laughs> yeah. right? Exactly. Meanwhile, he actually knows a lot about baseball, and that, I don't. <laughs> that's very funny. Just goes to show you uh, that breadth of and depth of knowledge doesn't necessarily help you win, uh, win championships. <laughs> well, I, I think the key was Jenny wasn't really involved in making too many decisions. <laughs> oh, you weren't telling when to bring in the we, left yeah, hander. You know. We're gonna, we need to switch pitchers. <laughs> that wasn't part of your uh, uh, responsibilities. <laughs> From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. 
Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. All right, so I know I only have you for a little while. Let me jump to my favorite questions that we ask all our guests. Starting with, tell us what you've been keeping yourself entertained with. What are you watching or listening to these days? Uh, I just finished, I'm always way behind on these things. Um, so I just finished, uh, I think it's called Dead to Me, which is a uh, oh, sure. Netflix series, which I thought was, it's a it's like a dark comedy, but it was very, very dark. funny. Yeah, yeah, very good, but very good. It was funny. Uh, and um, I've been watching a little bit of Manifest. So that was one that- I've I heard about Manifest. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Um, so anyway, and then, you know, I- uh, I love to watch. There's a there's a streaming service called Curiosity Stream. Uh huh. Oh sure. And uh, you know it's got great documentaries on science and and history and stuff like that. So I I tend to to watch some things. I was trying to understand quantum computing and what it does right. and quantum entanglement. And uh, because it, it, from a text entanglement, standpoint, spooky action at, exactly. a, at a distance. Yeah. And so the, you know, so Curiosity I, Stream is one of my favorite. Has one of my favorite astronomy. Channel. Okay, so it, it, it's really they do like deep crazy stuff and it's you just get lost in yeah, it. Yeah. No, exactly. So I love watching that kind of thing. Huh. Really, really interesting. Uh I know the answer, but I gotta ask anyway. Tell tell us about your early mentors who helped shape your career. Well, my father is uh my early mentor and continues to be my greatest mentor. Uh I feel incredibly blessed to have him and um, and am grateful. Uh, and like I said, he's uh, never tells you what to do, but he's always a great. If you ask, he's he's always great at giving you you know his opinion uh, and really incredibly thoughtful. Huh, really interesting. Let's talk about books. I, I have to say something about my mom for Go a ahead. second. Okay, so All you right. got to understand, my mom had seven kids and then went back to Stanford Medical School. Oh, so really? While my dad was building Franklin, wow. she was she was doing that, and they they you know she's eighty seven. Uh, they're uh, amazing, and uh, you know how, you how long did she partnership. how long did she practice for? Oh, I think she practiced probably um, you know twenty five years. Wow. After seven kids went to medical school, that's yeah. a hell of an accomplishment. I think she probably decided she needed a reason to be out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> that's very funny. Um, let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites and what are you reading right now? I am um, reading a book on, on Kissinger right now. Um, but I think, you know- His I, book or, or the no, someone else's uh, biography? Uh, I'm reading um, Walter Isaacson's uh -huh. uh, book on Kissinger. Uh, um I loved his book on Steve Jobs and a few really of the ones that he's done. So I like historical fiction and I like history books. Um, probably Ken Follett. I really enjoy his historical fiction books. You know, right. the ones on World War One, World War Two. Um, he's a great one called, um, oh, it's about the building of cathedrals, Pillars of the Earth, I think it is. Every one of his books could absolutely be a movie, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, they it's all fantastic. are like yeah. a James Bond uh, yeah. unwind. But by the way, if you liked um, Isaacson's uh, biography on Jobs, I'm drawing a blank on, his name is on the tip of my tongue. Did you see the book on the Wright Brothers? Oh, David McCullough. Oh, yeah, yeah. So fascinating. Is it good on the Wright Brothers? So, I read that one. Yeah, like, I, he's another one I'm a big fan. Uh, right. Of. Everything yeah. he writes, it's just- It's amazing. Uh, right? Yeah. It's like he was there reporting on it and 100 years forward. <laughs> exactly. Just just so much details. Yep. Uh, down to our final two questions. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in either investment management or finance? You know, I- feel like as an industry, we don't do a good enough job at, at selling people on what we do. And I tell the story about, you know, I have five kids and um, with my daughter, I, with, I was talking to my daughters and I said, so are, are you going to join me in this uh, industry? And one of my daughters said, no, mom, I want to do something that helps people. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? This industry is a great industry to help people. Um, you know, you wouldn't have the vaccines that we had without you know, the businesses that were out there that were investing and trying to, um, you know, find opportunities. Uh, we help people, 
I say at Franklin Templeton to achieve the most important financial goals of their life. And oh, by the way, every goal, not every goal, most goals require some financial right. component. Buy a house, retirement. Kids' education. Right, whatever, down the yeah. line. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I, my first thing is to say this is just a great industry to be in if you want to make a difference and you want to help people. Uh, you think about some of the stuff on ESG, you know, the, the kind mm-hmm. of impact investing, those types of things. All of those things require money. And so uh, one is it's a great industry. Two is go in and be just curious. Ask questions. Read. I always you know, say to people, read the CEO's letter in an annual report if you want to know what's on your boss's mind, right? Because they're going to lay it out there uh, and, and, and try to connect what you do to the bigger picture of whatever a company is. Huh, really, really interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew 35 years or so ago when you were first starting out? Well, I think the tenets that have always been important, which we talked about earlier, like diversification, get invested early, the value of compounding, dollar cost averaging, where you just keep committing, Mm -hmm. you know, and investing month after month after month. Those things get lost sometimes in the stories, and yet they're probably the most important things about investing. Hmm. Really, really, really good stuff. Jenny Johnson, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This has just been delightful. We have been speaking with Jenny Johnson. She is the CEO of Franklin Templeton. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the 500 other such conversations we've had over the past nine years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you find your favorite podcast. You can sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts on Twitter at podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together. Each week, Atika Valbron is my project manager. Justin Milner is my audio engineer. Paris Wald is my producer. Sean Russo is my researcher. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.